This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to another episode of Religionless Church with Mason Meniga. You are going to need to put your Enneagram 5 pants on for this one. I am telling you, it is all sorts of heady and nerdiness. I mean, if if that's your thing, you are going to love this episode. That's because we have David Congdon. David is an author and a speaker. He's written a few books, so make sure that you check him out. All of his information is below in the description so you can check out him on twitter and on his website and all the work that he is doing also we have some special music guests a band that i am really really been digging the last few months they're called river teeth they're actually a local band from minneapolis where i live they are a post-hardcore band so be ready for some really good yelling and some really good drop d guitar work some little tinkering uh, and melodic work in their guitar stuff. Just a really wonderful post-hardcore band. They they released an EP in 2016 called Loving a Place You've Never Been. Hmm. I wonder what that could all be about. So anyway, the few songs that you hear throughout this episode are on that EP. And again, you can check out all of their stuff in the links below in the description. You can also get connected with other Religionless Church episodes and some of my other work, including some of the papers that I release from my seminary experience. You can access that all on my website at masonmenega.com and all of those links and the ways that you can get in contact with me and connected with me are in the links below. So what do you think? Are you ready for David Cogden? I know I am. So sit back, relax, or if you're driving, make sure you're paying attention to the road. Hands on 10 and 2. This is the basics. We should all know this by now, right? Okay, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this wonderful episode of Religionless Church with Mason Meninga.
Uh, we have David Congdon. Did I say it right again? Yes. Great. Fine. Great. Uh, we, have, we have David here today, and David is a author, a speaker, a scholar, and the acquisitions editor of University of Kansas Press. Is that correct? Uh, yes. University Press of Kansas. You, yes. Uh, switch words wrong. Um, so... David does all those sorts of things. Uh, he also is very active on Twitter. He's, he's kind of one of those uh, Mount Rushmore heads of, of sorts <laughs> of, of what is called theology Twitter, for those that are well-versed in, into that world. Um, and, and I know this about you, David. So just so you know, I've been paying attention to your tweeting. You are a big Arcade Fire fan as well. That's true. I have. I have I've seen them five times now, I think. Oh, my and, goodness. Uh, did so, you see? Um, did you see them recently? Where they like came out like in a boxing match or something? Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Oh, I, I. So I didn't see that, but I've heard of it, and it just. So they came here in, in to Minneapolis a few months ago, and I completely yep. missed it. Uh, that and I, they probably have fairly uh, spendy tickets, at least outside of outside of what I make. Uh, They're pretty reasonable, I should say. Yeah. But no, I mean, I would say, I think, um, you know, this tour was uh, a little easier to get access to than the previous one. So, oh, interesting. Um, okay. Yeah. Are, is, uh, so be- before we get into like all the theology questions, I do want to know about this. What would be your favorite album of Arcade Fire? Oh, uh, I mean, it has to be Funeral. I mean, I think. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, for me, um, I mean, I still think it's their best work, and uh, I mean, it has a special place for me personally. I, mm-hmm. you know, I saw them on that tour before. I mean, I, I was I went to their very first tour. Um, they were like the third of four bands. It was a ten dollar cover at the door. Um, oh I was probably four feet from from Win Butler, you know, and That's um, so it was a it was a special experience. I mean, I I came just for them, left after them, you know, and. Um, <laughs> Um, no, it was, it was just a great moment, but no, I, I, that album has held a lot of significance for me. Um, mm-hmm. some of the songs in that album, I, I theologically have theologically informed my work. I, wow. I should say. Yeah. Maybe that will be, uh, I'm going to insert, I'm going to kind of ad lib it a little then I'm going to add that question towards the end because okay. I, I would be interested to know what, what some of that, uh, uh, that uh, what their music, uh, some of that music sure. that's been informing to you, your theology. Uh, but before we do that, uh, as I said before, you're an author, a speaker, you're a uh, acquisitions editor, and a scholar. So you do a number of different things, and I, I think you're. Are you a father as well? I am. I have two children. Father, are you a partner as well? Yes. Yeah. Part- I have a wife. Partner. Yep. Partner. Uh, a father, and you do all sorts of different things. Uh, so you are. All those things to a lot of different people, but I'm more curious: who is David Cogdon to David Cogden? Uh, <laughs> who am I to myself? <laughs> wow, um, I, um, I, I, I guess I'm, a, I'm a, uh, I'm a. Wow, that's a good question. <laughs> I, I am a insatiably curious person with a strong desire to transform my surroundings i i think mm. you know if you know the if you know the enneagram at all i'm, yep. I'm a one i'm a one in oh you are enneagram. yeah I'm a, I'm a one wing nine okay um, I'm, a, I'm a hardcore 
uh, you know, kind of reformist. I'm a mm-hmm. reformer, you know, with perfectionist, you know, uh, impulses, but I want to change my surroundings and I'm, I'm passionate about doing so. You know, a lot of people think, think I'm like a five where I'm a hardcore bookish nerd, yep. which I am. I am a bookish nerd. I am, uh, you know, I, I would love to just be in a library by myself. Um, I think if I was, if I lived, you know, a thousand years ago, I'd be a great monk. Um, I would have been <laughs> you know, in a library transcribing manuscripts and, and the rest. But, um, but at, at my heart, at my core level, you know, it's, it's the, the bookish uh, intellectual pursuits that I have, they are in service towards something. And that's, mm. that's in service toward, um, addressing my surroundings, my, what the, the, the social ills or the, or the, the issues that I, I, I'm, I'm passionate about that I see around me. I, um, that's always been at, the, at my core level, what's driven me to do what I want mm-hmm. to do. Um, and, and so the intellectual stuff is important to me, but it's really in service to a larger end. Um, and so that's, um, that's kind of who I am, uh, at root. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I'll leave it at that. I mean, I think <laughs> you may, uh, I, I guess, you know, what's, what's helpful about that to understand who I am and how I understand myself is, um, I'm not content with, uh, settled ideas or the status quo mm, yep. <laughs> of any, of any kind, you know, I really, classic one. um, I really don't like to stay put. Um, and I don't like to just accept the way things have always been done. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that sense, um, I, I'm, I'm kind of a natural heretic and <laughs> I guess in that way, um, I, 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 I feel an affinity for those throughout history who have, um, been labeled such. So uh, that's, that's part of kind of how I see myself. Drift apart as the so your most recent work, The God Who Saves, uh, what, what year did that come out? Uh, it's two years ago now, 2016. Wow. Let's think, 2016. That was two years ago. It's unbelievable. Um, so, well, I'll let you kind of describe uh, what, what you're getting at with The God Who Saves. But before, before we get there, I would like to know the impulse behind you writing The God Who Saves. The, oh, well, the impulse was, I mean, there are a couple um, things that happened to me. I mean, one was when I first started to blog theologically back, oh, that was 10 years before that. So 2006, um, I started my blog. And that same year, I, um, I went, I, well, I was in seminary. So I was at Princeton Seminary at the time as an MDiv student. And I quickly, uh, realized that I was, I, I felt strongly about universalism or I I was, I leaned, you know, very strongly in that direction. And I, um, so I started this blog series that went on for several months on why I'm a universalist and, uh, it generated quite a bit of attention. Um, and, and it caught the eye of, of Robin Perry as an editor at Wiffenstock. Um, and asked me to write kind of a, a systematic theology around universalism, um, which I thought would be something I would enjoy doing. So I agreed to it. Um, that 
that was an initial impulse, but um, my own thinking changed, uh, you know, over the years between when he asked me, or at least when I started that series, certainly, and when I actually got around to writing the book, um, which I didn't really, I didn't really start writing the book in earnest until, uh, oh, 2014 or so. Um, I mean, I'd been tinkering, tinkering with it for a while, but it was, it was something that I knew had to wait until I was finished with my dissertation and my PhD. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I toyed with it here and there, but, um, I more or less shelved it until I was finished with the PhD program. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and when I picked it back up again, I, I, I couldn't go back to what I had thought of doing originally. Okay. Um, and so, so even though the initial impulse for the book was this blog series I had done, you know, 10 years before, um, which Robin Perry was interested in, what was the real impulse was I I was really trying to to figure out how could I reconcile my kind of gut instinct that, um, that God's redemptive love applies to all or that, you know, all are included in this, uh, whatever we mean by salvation, which is Mm -hmm. another question. Um, what, how do I reconcile that with this very existential theology that I had developed in my reading with on Boltmann? So, mm-hmm. um, so during this time, um, for those who don't know, I became a, a, a scholar in Rudolf Boltmann's theology and, and thinking. So, um, and that existentialist in, uh, framework of mind became very important to me, and I, mm-hmm. I, I needed to find some way to bring those together because um, Boltmann. Uh, is not a universalist, and so how do I bring these these competing impulses and and uh, interests yeah. together? So that was that's the kind of theological uh, basis for the book, um, and the book the book is an attempt to to flesh out what a kind of what a kind of Boltmannian universalism would look like. Um, <clears throat> I mean, that's that's one way of describing the book, which is true mm-hmm. historically in terms of how I came to that project. Um, but there's another way of describing it. The other impulse I have, I, I would say, is I, um, I, I guess I was trying to discover a theology that made sense for for me in this in the world that I was in, which was no mm-hmm. longer, you know, I uh, I just wasn't comfortable with the theologies that I had inherited or I had read in seminary, um, those, they, they were inspiring or, or illuminating, uh, for me in various ways, but they no longer, they no longer were credible for me mm. and some kind of gut level instinct. And I was on a quest to, uh, to develop a theology that was credible, that made sense for me in the, our contemporary, um, modern, postmodern, whatever, post-secular, post-whatever, you know, context. Mm-hmm. And that, and uh, you know, there's an old saying that you know, if you can't find the book that you you're trying to find, you should write it yourself. And <laughs> um, and I guess that's more or less what I tried to do was I I couldn't find a theologian who was saying what I thought needed to be said. And so I decided, well, I ought to just try it, you know, to write that, that theology. Um, so that's, that's the other impulse is just, I needed to have, I needed to find a theology that resonated with my understanding of God and the world. So. Hmm. A million raindrops 
what is it then in the book that you do? Kind of like what maybe like a brief synopsis of it, or what what is it that like you hope for the reader to uh, take away from reading The God Who Saves? Yeah, so I mean, I'm writing the book for a couple different audiences. I mean, I'll I'm going to skip the audience that's like the scholarly. Uh, high-level kind of theologian guild mm-hmm. audience, because that's, I have a different message to them. Um, but the message I want, I want the most readers of the book to get away from is I, uh, I want them to encounter an approach to theology that uh, um, is, is honest about where it's coming from, and what it's trying to, to to grapple with. I think so much of theology, unfortunately, so many so many of the theologies people read, um, uh, the theologians are um, are trying to work within certain parameters right. that are they're part of their tradition, and they're trying to do what they can with this body of material within the limits that they have either imposed upon themselves or have been imposed upon them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so a lot of it is, it, it, a lot of it can come across as kind of a, a game within certain boundaries that are, feel very arbitrary or, or the language can often be in, in, in almost, almost intentionally and um, obnoxiously obstruct, ob- obstructionist, you know, like, mm-hmm. or, or obs- obscurantist, you know, like they, a lot of language is obscure and um, ambiguous, and uh, you know you could read it in 15, 15 different ways. You're not right. really sure what the person is trying to say. You know, do they do they actually mean what they're saying here, or or is this like a, a cloaked metaphor for something over here? You know, and there's a lot of obscure language that gets tossed around as if it's so self-evidently uh, meaningful and and inspiring. Um, I just wanted to write a theology that was just straightforward. Like, like, yes, I use jargon because sometimes the jargon is, is necessary and it's right. helped to clarify what we're talking about. But I, I wanted the reader to come away with a very clear sense. This is what I mean to say. I, mm. I do. I think God is this and God is not that, you know, and, mm. and I, um, I just wanted to get past a lot of the a- ambiguity that, that kind of, burdens so much of theology and makes it seem impenetrable to a lot of people and, and irrelevant. I, um, hmm. a lot of uh, many theologians kind of take pride in their kind of, uh, ir- the irrelevance of their theology because <laughs> they, um, you know, for them, the, the, the goal of relevance is, is so, uh, pedestrian and, and it kind of, um, it makes theology or makes God, this, you know, uh, too much, at the service of people and we should be in service to God. And so we should, we should aspire to the obscure and ambiguous language because, mm-hmm. um, because that's more faithful to this mysterious and, uh, holy God. Um, and I, I think a lot of that is just nonsense. You know, I think, I think theology should be clear and it should be meaningful and it should be relevant and it should be straightforward. We should know what we're talking about and we should, we should mean what we say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just was tired of theologians not saying what they mean. Um, I, you know, I think a classic example, one I grapple with a lot in the book is Karl Barth. I mean, I love Barth's work in many ways. I appreciate his work in, in many respects, but it is deeply ambiguous, deeply mm-hmm. obscure. And at times, um, 
so frustratingly so, uh, where uh, you know he can't be he can't mean what he says here because he, he says something completely different, you know, elsewhere in the same book, you know. So there's just things like that which uh, just drive me nuts, and I I, I mm-hmm. was just tired of it, um, and I just wanted to write a theology that said what it meant, and 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 really just you know was clear about it. So. That's what I, that's what I'm trying to do. There's, I mean, that's that's the kind of formal description of the book. In, in terms of the actual nuts and bolts, what I do, I mean, I, the heart of the book is basically to provide a new understanding of salvation um, and to say what I think salvation is really about. Um, it's not about being saved from hell or being saved from death or being saved from, uh, you know, a lot of the usual, uh, you know, Satan or whatever it might be. Right. Um, I, I make I understand salvation to be this existential being saved from ourselves, you know, being saved from this being uh, closed up within our own egos, mm-hmm. um, and salvation is being uh, moved outside of ourselves, being um, being uh, uh, made insecure within ourselves in in order to in order to find ourselves anew in communion with others. Um, mm-hmm. So that it's this kind of existential communal social. A kind of salvation. It's not incredibly novel. There's a lot of other theologians who have grappled with similar ideas. Um, what what I try to do in the book is take that insight and develop an entire account of theology from that starting point. I'll, the problem right. I, I find with a lot of theologians and a lot of theologies is that um, they'll deal with a little bit of Christology here and a little bit of eschatology over here, a little bit of the church over here. Um, and, 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 and when you try to put it all together and like make it all cohere. It doesn't cohere. Mm-hmm. Um, they have bits and pieces from all over the place. And I tried to develop a theology that would be a consistent account from beginning to end where every piece was, was developed directly in line with this starting point of salvation. One of those points that it seems like you're trying to make uh, cohere that I and I think that uh, most systematic theologians have struggled with is uh, the site or the gathering point or um, the ecclesia um, of of uh, one's particular theology. So in in this case, you're starting with soteriology and the the theology of, of salvation, and you're, you're trying to make it cohere in this idea of ecclesiology, or um, as you call it, the site of theology. Um, and that, and that's, that particular point is, is something that I'm deeply interested in. So in chapter five, you talk about the site of, uh, of salvation, and I was curious to just tell us more about what, do you, what are you suggesting in that chapter? And maybe what are you hoping for the uh, the reader to receive when reading that chapter? Yeah, that chapter was is really important to the book, um, and I uh, didn't initially exp- understand it to be so before I wrote it. But then after I, afterwards, I realized it's in some ways uh, crucial to the whole project. <laughs> um, I what I'm trying to do in that chapter is I'm trying to overturn 
how we think about the church, uh, because um, a lot of most theology, I mean, I think almost almost universally so, most theology assumes that we know what the church is before we talk about theology. Mm. Um, we yeah. we already belong to a church, or for most most people, we already. Mm-hmm. We know what the church is before we've begun the reading or the studying or whatever. It's just that's a given, right? That's a given starting point. And so most theologians try to work with how can we work with this given? Uh, we can modify it this way or we can tinker with it that way. Mm-hmm. I want to say I, 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 I kind of try to wipe the slate clean. I don't think we can begin with a given that we know what the church is before we've actually grappled with what salvation is. Um, mm. so, um, we might belong to a, a people, a community that calls itself the church, and we might be involved in practices that are associated with what we call a church. But I want to suggest that those may not actually be the church, um, mm. that we may, we might actually have to, um, call into question the qualifications of those sites as being authentically ecclesial. Um, and so what I offer is uh, an understanding of the church that is constructed from the ground up um, in accordance with my understanding of salvation. Um, and then w- once we do that, then we're hopefully, uh, my hope is that we are given eyes to see the church in unique places outside of mm. where we're accustomed to seeing the church. We're accustomed to associating the church with this building over here down the street or right. that place over there. And I want to suggest that um, there's no guarantee those places are actually the church just because they call themselves as such. Right. Um, and so that's, that's, my, that's my attempt in that chapter is to, um, to disassociate our understanding of church with our understanding of, well, yeah, what we, what we think of as a church with what actually is the church, I guess. Um, and that's what I'm hoping to do. And so part of what I do in that chapter is to uh, replace church language with apostolate language. So the mm-hmm. language of the apostolate, um, it's, it's New Testament language, but it's especially associated with certain um, theologians and missiologists in the 20th century who were trying to, themselves to reconceive the church. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of dealing with a lot of their work and, and trying to uh, rehabilitate it or, or kind of re- refresh it for today. Um, and, uh, but I'm, speci- I'm specifically engaged in a debate with what are called post-liberal theologians who um, make the given church, this tradition that's been kind of handed on, that's kind of obvious and mm-hmm. self-evident. Um, they make that uh, kind of a basic ground starting point for all their work. And I, I'm... Right. I'm in direct conflict with them. So that's, okay. that's that chapter is a big uh, argument with uh, with those folks. So you you've touched into this a little bit uh, and and you probably wouldn't maybe describe yourself specifically as an ecclesiologist. Uh, so maybe you want to delegate this question to to those folks, uh, to those colleagues. But uh, I'm curious. Uh, tr- tr- put your ecclesiolo- um, ecclesiologist hat on for a moment, and based on the concept of what you um, lay out in chapter five uh, of the God Who Saves, 
how do you envision or maybe what what would you like to see envisioned or embodied in the world with uh your idea of this this site of salvation yeah so how how would i want to see this embodied you know that's a question i've i've grappled with and and thought a lot quite a bit about recently um I think I want to start off by just uh, saying that I, what I don't want to be suggesting, what I don't want people to take away from my my book, is that I have this vision of what the church ought to look like right. in every every in every situation. Right. Um, and partly what I want, and that's that's a big issue for me is I want to break away from this notion that there is one version or one right. form of Christianity. Um, the, the the a crucial part of my whole argument in the book is the multiplicity and the diversity of forms that Christianity can and should take, mm-hmm. um, and that and that multiplicity is intrinsic to its its, its essence. Um, so uh, that being said, um, I I you know I think you know we're at a really interesting juncture in history now where we're we're having to grapple with new ways of being faithful or you know to to this reality of this uh to god or to however we want to call it um mm-hmm. this uh to this new this new world this new understanding of ourselves and um what what that looks like you know i think we're 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 already being forced to rethink our ideas of the church because a lot of the old the old institutions are either dying or they're struggling and right. and are no longer um uh, they're no longer grappling with our our realities and existential situations. Um, so, so that's a I think that's a good thing. I think we're it's a good thing that we're being forced to deal with this and and talk about it. Um, what that means for the future, you know, I, uh, I I I I think it's going to be uh, a number of things. One one thing would be um, finding the church in communities of prophetic action. Um, Hmm. so, um, I, I, you know, in some ways I think the future of the church is going to be found in the future of social activism, um, where, uh, people, um, join together for causes that are beyond themselves. I mean, I think in some ways, um, you know, if, the church, in some ways, it, it, what it's really about is this: is the sense that there's a transnational, you know, you know global sense of of fellowship with mm-hmm. people that are united um, in a way uh, towards certain ends and and goals that are um, uh, that ought to have a transformative effect in their communities and their surroundings. And I think um, once we Kind of demythologize some of the uh, metaphysical ideas that we were kind of that we've inherited in our tra- in our traditions and our theologies. Um, uh, I think I think certain forms of prophetic action uh, will be essential to what it looks like for the church to be the church in the future. Hmm. Um, I, I bring up you know things like Black Lives Matter in the book, you know, or things like that, which I, I you know I, I I gesture at some of that stuff. Um, but uh, that's just that's not the only version. I think that's just one way in which right. I think the 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 new community, however you want to call it, the the apostolate, um, it enters into history. Um, you know, I I'm, I've often been 
been uh, captured by uh, Dorothy Zerla's uh, example in Germany when she was before she came to the U.S. Um, you know, some people would gather in a home and they would like read the newspaper together and and reflect on how to engage the social needs of their situation. Um, and I think uh, that's another example where I th- where I see something that could be translated into our current context. Um, that being said, I, I should also add. I mean, I am I am a uh, I'm a received Episcopalian, and I I participate in the Episcopal Church, um, and, uh, and and gladly so. I mean, I, I find a lot of really good things in that community, um, and I'm not you know I, as much as I am uh, kind of anti traditionalist, I am <laughs> I am not anti liturgical. Um, right. And I do think there is an important place for that kind of liturgical gathering and community. I, I would be sad to see it lost. So even though I do think it probably will be lost in some sense in the future, down the road, um, I, 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 do, I do grieve that. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the thing for me, I, what I think is important about liturgical churches and especially the mainline traditions, um, there is. Uh, it, there are a couple aspects of it that I think need to be held on to. We need to find new ways, new institutions that can carry it on. Because I'm not anti-institutional. Um, there, it, it's the sense that, um, here's the thing, what it comes down to is this. Uh, the, 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 the great thing that the church can provide, the institutional church can provide, is the ability to, to have your work carry on beyond your lifetime. Um, the problem with so many uh, upstart, you know, church gatherings or new forms of church is that they last only so long as their initiating pastor or leader right. or whatever it is uh, is still active. Mm-hmm. And once they're gone, that community dissolves. Um, now, I think that's fine in many contexts. Sometimes our work is only a short time project that can be done for a while and then it needs to go away. Right. But I do think there's a need for certain communities and certain forms of gatherings that can pass along their work to sustain their cause. You know, the justice work that needs to go on and on and on because the systemic needs are so great and right. the, the issues are so profound. Um, you know, we, we can't, we, you know, we need institutions to carry on some of that stuff or else the corporations and the rest are all just going <laughs> to assume us within their you know technocracy whatever in the future but you know we so there's a there's a need for for that and and so um whether it's denominational institutional bodies that are able to do that work or whether it's some other form of institution in the future that's fine but um but we're gonna need to think about that and need to think Mm -hmm. about what that's gonna look like Uh, i just so I'm open to a variety of forms of the apostolate. Um, I think we need a variety of forms because the, the work that we have to do is not uh, cannot be can, cannot be done by just one kind of body of people. Right. Um, we're we're going to need to be engaged in different ways. And so it might mean that in the future, I, I would like to see us think about the church as being um, so diverse that we're actually there are there's church that happens in in different forms within, within our own life. I might be engaged in church hmm. as, as, uh, as a social gathering activist movement in one part of my life. I might be involved in church uh, in a more of a, 
uh, more institutional uh, community building kind of work, you know, somewhere mm-hmm. else, you know, whatever it might be. I mean, there's, I might be involved in church uh, in uh, in several different ways in the course of my of my week, and mm. that's a, and that's part of what it means. I think it's, we're going to need to diversify what it means to be involved in the church. One of those ways that I think you and I and a number of people are finding ourselves to be uh, a part of maybe a different form of church in our lives is in on Twitter, I I think is interestingly Uh, based on what you lay out and suggest in the God who saves. How do you see that kind of taking form? into this Twitter community that uh, is developing and flourishing and, uh, and kind of in conversation in, in a lot of ways in a, on a regular basis, M- much, like a, much like churches usually do, right? No, it's true. I, you know, I don't know. Um, I, so I, I really appreciated my interactions on Twitter. I, found, I find a lot of those... Um, that that kind of online community has been very you know life giving and, and supportive and and helpful. Um, it, it is it, you know it is complicated. I, I'm mm-hmm. not sure exactly how I feel about it all the time. Um, the you know <laughs> I don't know. It's Twitter is, is sort of this. Uh, I I've, I've enjoyed making use of it. And I've appreciated the connections I've made on it. At the same time. I'm not so sure it's a force for good in this world, um, <laughs> given everything else that's going on. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it's yeah. We're it, we're always like one tweet away, <laughs> one tweet away until that it's not a false alarm. Precisely. Yeah. I um, I, I don't know. So I I just I I I don't want to be too you know Pollyannish here about about Twitter as being this new form of church, um, even though it is, you know, I think you're right, just factually, it is functioning that way for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, I, I think that's a, that's a good thing. Um, I think insofar, I mean, just like any church or any form of church um, can be used in very, you know, abusive and, 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 and traumatic and, and divisive ways. Um, right. Obviously, um, we can ho- hopefully redeem that and, and find ways to mobilize it in more, uh, just and flourishing and and peaceful ways. So, I think um, Twitter obviously has that that capacity and potential. Um, for me, it's been, you know, I, I think for most people, it's a way of networking with people you're never going to meet otherwise. You know, mm-hmm. it's a chance to connect um, uh, with people who you just wouldn't have a chance to interact with them, and and it, kind of those shared interests. Um, so. You know, it's the good thing about that is we can actually get a lot of stuff done. I mean, I, I've made connections with people that have flourished into, you know, writing projects or mm-hmm. conference events or whatever it might be. I mean, that's kind of how the blog was for me back when that was more uh, popular. Um, the danger, of course, with Twitter, like with any uh, interest group gathering, um, is you aren't forced to, to interact with people necessarily who you are different from, I mean, you, right. you are in some ways with Twitter, but that's often a traumatic sense in a very bad <laughs> way. But the, this is the thing about a local church body, which I do appreciate. And that is, you know, 
there's that you know elderly couple you know who is mm-hmm. who you, you're just you're gonna you interact with at a kind of personal level that maybe you wouldn't see or talk to on an online form right or right. or maybe uh, whatever it might be or you know children or whatever who, there's a variety of people um, in a local community that um, you can develop relationships with that um, I think is special and so I think we, we I don't want to lose sight of that and the and the good that comes with that kind of community. Um, at the same time, Twitter has its purposes, and that is to really, uh, for people who have shared interests, to bring them together and have a chance to um, have some productive conversations. So that's, I think, that's helpful. That yeah, I really, I really appreciate that. I, I, I really sense that in my own self too. Where uh, just within the last year, I've, I've kind of stumbled upon this, this community. The specific community on Twitter, and uh, little did I know that uh, there were a number of people out there who were really interested in the in these same sort of pursuits and um, and interests. And it, for me, and, and I, I I totally understand um, why a number of people would uh, would want to step away. Uh, there's really good reasons for why a person would want to step away, especially within the last few weeks and what could transpire with, with the president of the United States with a phone yep. in his hands. But, um, but for me and in, in that specific community, uh, it's been certainly life-giving and in, in, in a way, yeah, it will, it will never be able to probably replace uh, a physical community where I can enter into a, a building and see faces that I and I can hug and I can touch hands and like, like that physicality. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Th- there's something to that, but I will say for the remaining part of the week, it really feels like this is a, a sort of church community of sorts, uh, or yeah. at least some sort of community of sorts that uh, definitely brings life uh, uh, and uh, and has me for me personally uh, certainly been uh, helpful and generative in uh, my own faith. So in, in those ways, I, I really do see it like a church community. On Twitter, we've interacted in the past a little bit about this, about this idea of uh, church kind, maybe our understanding of the church moving a little bit more towards like a technology centric uh, platform or um, avenue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I know both, uh, both you and I think agree that there, there's something about the physicality of being in a physical space with one another that I don't think we'll ever replace. I, I think that's just deeply ingrained in the human experience and that's what we'll always, we'll always mm-hmm. have a desire for that. Um, but I'm kind of curious to what you think, and we've touched on this a little bit, of maybe the ways that you see communities of faith maybe evolving into something that might be a little bit more technology-centric or uh, maybe more focused within the the realm of uh, the internet or being online. That's a, I mean, it's a good question. I, I think that's inevitable. I think, I think that's probably where things are headed no matter what i um you know i can see 
kind of a VR world, kind of like a Ready Player One version of of life that will develop, you know, in the future, where that kind of online gathering is probably um, going to be more and more prominent um, in our experience. Um, I, uh, you know, I. <laughs> I will say I've 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 toyed with the idea of developing a theology for uh, for the robotic age for for <laughs> AI. I, I think that's coming. I think that's probably. Right. I think we need to, totally. I think we need an ethic. I think we I think we need a robot ethics probably uh, soon. Yeah. Now, um, you know, I mean, I think that's probably uh, within you know a generation here. We're going to see that. I think like pretty, Sa- pretty Saudi Arabia so, like recently granted citizenship to I, I think. I yes, forget what the right. the AI's name is, like Sophia or whatever. But yeah, um, I yeah. mean, we already have AI that's being granted citizenship. <laughs> We're like at the right. point where we probably need to figure out what are ethical uh, considerations and um, obligations and uh, responsibilities no, are I, to that I, person. Then right, and all that. I mean, and then we have to raise questions of theology. You know, how, what's the theological you know uh, status and identity of of AI and, and all that stuff. So, I mean, I mean, these kinds of questions are going to become um, prominent. I think we need to start, I think we need to, to anticipate them now and, and incorporate some of those insights. Um, it's going to raise a lot of, you know, you know, body, uh, you know, you know, you know, body spirit kinds of questions that yeah. are, they're already on, on people's minds already with, with neuroscience and the rest. Um, so, I mean, there's a, a lot of issues that I think need to be tackled and uh, explored. Um, I, in terms of what the church will look like, I, you know, I, I don't know. Um, I, I suppose it, it's, I, uh, I, it's, it's funny, you know, I, as my theology has become more, um, more radical and progressive and more opposed to certain kind of traditional theologies um my own my own spiritual pra- practice in life has become more traditional insofar as i've moved away from kind of those uh non-denominational evangelical kind of bodies i grew up with and mm-hmm. and moved into more traditional episcopal kind of uh, spaces um and uh, so i i i think for me um i i've sort of relinquished control over that stuff you know i mean i I suppose what that means is I'm open to the manifold possibilities of the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know technology is going to be a, an important part of that. I, I have misgivings about some of it. Um, but I also think that's part of what it means to uh, get older is that I have certain patterns and habits and assumptions <laughs> about how things should be. And, um, those are going to be viewed as antiquated pretty soon. And, and my children are already are going to feel that way about me. Um, so <laughs> I, I have to kind of, uh, just learn to, to embrace that and, uh, embrace my antiquatedness, um, and, you know, let others guide the conversation. Uh, I, um, it's, it's become very important for me, both in terms of my theology and my practice to, um, to not try to have the answers um and you know i the god who saves was an important project for me because that that's what i needed to say for myself right um but i i don't have any pretensions of trying to rescue theology or trying to rescue the church um and 
at this point, I think the best thing that I or most people can do is is really to listen to the communities of those who are marginalized and 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 especially communities of color mm-hmm. and seek hear what they're doing um, and figure out how best I can be an ally and supporter for them and their work. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, wherever they go, that's where I think the church is going to be anyway. And so that's where I'll, I'll try to find the churches mm. are basically in those places. Um, and that's already in some ways online insofar as a lot of the, you know, social justice activist work is happening through online connections. And so, uh, insofar as Twitter or other platforms are being used in that way, and that's that's where the church is, um, and that's probably going to be the case in the future. Uh, but um, I, I'm, you know, I'm also uh, aware that that's that's not gonna that that will never um, you know be the only location of the church. It's just that's that's one way in which it will be um, you know actualized right. in our life. Um, so. Uh, so I, I suppose I'm I'm very open and 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 I'm I'm excited to see where things develop and where they go. At the same time, um, I'm I'm trying to resist uh, singular narratives that suggest yeah. this is the answer. This is going to solve the future of the church. You know, there's a, there's a lot of hand wringing and anxiety over the death of the church and the end of the of Christendom and what the future of the church will look like and people trying to find the solution to kind of salvage the church in the future. I, I don't really care about that anymore. I, um, I, I don't think we need to, I, I'm, I'm certainly not anxious or concerned about the death of the old church institutions, you know, that if they die, they die. Um, that isn't the death of the church as I understand it theologically. Right. So uh, insofar as there are people gathered in the work of, of justice, then that's where the church is. And um and, and wherever that takes place, whatever forms that that involves, whether technology or or whatever it might be, um, then that's great. You know, I'm I'm open to it all. So transitioning to a little different uh, of a question, we have a special request of a question. From our friend John Mark uh, on Twitter, uh, who goes by Epic Tillich. So great, great, <laughs> wonderful person. And he had the question of, so, and you, you briefly mentioned that in The God Who Saves, you, you kind of talk about who you think God is. Uh, and so uh, John Mark's question is kind of two-part question. What or who do you think is God. Uh, so what or who is God? And then based on that answer, when and how did you kill the God that you had before that for the one that you have just <laughs> described? He's, you know, he's all about, he, he's very violent, but very violent of a person. Um, he's all about killing gods, right? So, wh- Who or what is God? Well, I, uh, okay. It's a it's a good question. I don't have a simple answer for it because it's not a simple question. <laughs> but the the answer the answer I'll give is um, so okay. So let me just step back for one moment. Just just uh, set the scene for this. 
uh, for me as a Christian theologian, I mean, I'm a, I understand myself as a theologian in the Christian tradition. Right. So for me, um, while I'm, I am very interested in questions about, you know, a divine being that can be understood in interreligious conversation in terms, for me, I'm specifically, I, as a theologian, I'm specifically in my vocation dealing with what Christianity has to say about God. Right. And I, I say all that because for me, I think my task is to understand in what sense is Jesus God? That's, that for me is the question that, that drives hmm. my work. Cause I, I, I don't, um, I, if I, if I were to step back from all that and kind of think about these things in terms of a philosopher of religion kind of approach, mm-hmm. then I would have a different answer for you. You know, something, you know, I would have an answer more like a kind of a Tillichian being itself kind of, kind of answer. Right. Um, and that, that, those kinds of responses to the question about what is God are of great interest to me. And I, I, I do want to meet up with those kinds of responses, but through the tradition that I am, I'm trained in. So, hmm. um, so I, I want to arrive at a conception of God that is, I, I don't have a personal view of God as a, as, as a person. So for me, my, my conception of God is more uh, impersonal, or I, I, I want to say more, uh, I'll describe it differently than that. I don't want to say it's impersonal in kind of a crude sense, but it's not a, a being with, you know, uh, you know, with a will that kind of, we can interact with, you know, kind of a personal yeah. being sense. Um, that being said, um, I do, I do want to say in some sense in which Jesus is God. And Jesus obviously is a person. And so this is the sense in which God is personal. Um, for me, Jesus is divine or is, is God incarnate, uh, to use the traditional language, in the sense that, uh, that the conception of salvation that I articulate, this kind of existential dislocation and, and um, being moved outside of oneself, mm-hmm. is actualized in Christ, in Jesus, in a decisive and, and unique way that, um, that when, we, when we encounter it, when we see it uh, in our own lives, it's in some sense a repetition of what happened in him. Hmm. Um, okay. And for me, to, to, be, to be perfectly straightforward, as I try to be in my book, that experience, that, set, that, that reality of salvation, that is God. Hmm. Um, that, that, ex, that, ex, that existential encounter or experience of being placed outside of ourselves, that experiential reality, that's, that's God. Um, and so that for me is where I, I tie into somebody like Tillich with, you know, the ground of being or being itself. Yeah. Um, I, lo- I locate it at that existential level of this sense of, of being you know, placed outside of ourselves or being displaced or, um, as I, in in my book, I call it being uh, co-crucified, to use the Pauline language. Um, so it's that existential reality, that experiential encounter with, with this beyond or this divine reality that actually that encounter is, is God. Um, so it's not a person it's not, but it's also not like a, what it's more in the book. I very clearly describe it as an event. It's a happening. So God, God is the happening, the event of our being placed outside of ourselves. Um, and so, um, 
and I, I describe that in Trinitarian terms because I'm a Christian theologian, and so I'm trying to deal with that. Um, it, it, uh, so God is the ground of this event, God is the power of this event, and God is the, the kind of future movement of this event. You know, it's, it's this kind of, uh, that's, you know, this uh, Christ-creator-spirit kind of connection. Um, and uh, that's, that's how I flesh that out. I mean, so uh, now when did I kill off my old concept of God? <laughs> well, um, I, I mean, I think it happened in stages, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I suppose that it occurred. Um, well, I, you know, that's really hard to say. I, I, don't, I don't think I so much killed off my old concept of God as I... Just, uh, I just no longer believed it. It just no longer was credible to me. Hmm. Um, the old, you know, I, I, uh, I guess you have to say, I mean, there, I, I went through a various evolutionary process in my, in my development of my theology where, you know, I came into theology with this very traditional, very conservative views that were just, you know, biblical literalism, all the rest, you know, um, and then that morphed into a very traditional Bardian position. And then that morphed mm-hmm. into something more like uh, Bonhoeffer or, or Eberhard Jungel, who I was reading at the time, um, and various other theologians along the way. And eventually got to Boltmann, and Boltmann's view is, is pretty stark and, pretty, and very existentialist um, in the sense that uh, I've been describing now. But, um, but he doesn't—I mean, Boltmann's view— uh, Boltman doesn't develop a whole theology because he's not a theologian. You know, he, he says what he has to say um, insofar as he thinks text compels him to say it. Um, but he doesn't go into an elaborate account of how this, all this stuff fits together because he doesn't care about it. Yeah. He doesn't care about doing that. It's just he's trying to read the text and, and say what he thinks, thinks these texts are saying. Um, so for me, I wanted to figure out, like, if you were to do a whole theology uh, that took Boltmann's more existentialist approach to God seriously, what would it look like? And mine is not what Boltmann would do, but it's, 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 in, the, it's in the spirit of what he would do. Mm-hmm. So it's an attempt to flesh out systematically what a Boltmannian approach um, would kind of demand of you. Uh, there's more to it than just Boltmann, of course, but um, that's, a, that's a big part of it. Uh, but so I don't know, I don't know where along that pathway I killed off my old concept of God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it depends on what you mean by that. I mean, if it's the traditional old evangelical concept, then I probably killed that off, you know, 10 years ago or more, mm-hmm. somewhere when I, I encountered theologians that were really serious about the stuff. Um, but the full-fledged existentialist account of God that I have now, that I didn't kill off probably until, I mean, even in the course of writing the book, probably. Uh, because I, my own, my own thinking was, was in, in transition, in process as I was writing the God who saves, uh, and I, I, I ended up in the book in a different place from where I began. I mean, it, it, it actually worked out very nicely because if you read the book from cover to cover as, as you're supposed to, <laughs> but you, you begin in the, you begin in the first chapter with a fairly, a more traditional Kind of, mm. it's a soft open, right? Yep. So the book guide it guides you very gently from the first chapter to the second chapter, and it gets progressively more radical. And by the time you get to the last chapter, it's just full on hardcore 
you know, you know, it's a fire hose of existentialist theology and is full on radical as you can get. Um, I mean, the epilogue is the most radical part of the whole book. Um, and so it just, it just kind of progresses from, from beginning to end. And so, you know, um, and that's very helpful, I think, in retrospect, rhetorically, because it can guide a conservative reader gently through the stages of my own faith journey, which is what the book does, actually, it kind of encapsulates my own faith. Um, and, but that wasn't intentional. I did not set out to do that. I, I, it was only at the end of the book, and I realized, you know, wow, I, if, if I go back and read the first chapter, it's a different, it's a different book. You know, if you, if, right. you, if you read it, like, if you go back and read it the second time, you know, the first chapter, it, it feels like it's from a different era, which it is. It was literally, that first chapter was written probably eight years or so before the last chapter. Um, because I wrote that first chapter back before I really encountered Boltman at a heavy level. And, and then I just kind of, as I was reading, I would tinker with it some more, tinker with it some more, and I added more material. And then by the end of it, you know, I'm in a whole different place. So it, it works rhetorically to kind of guide you from one step to the other step. Um, but, uh, but somewhere along that way, <laughs> my, my whole, my whole theology changed. So uh, I suppose chapter three is really the, tra the transition point. I mean, everything after chapter three is, is, is kind of, uh, at a starkly different level. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, but things were still in flux for me for, for quite a while. Uh, let, let's get into some Bonhoeffer. Uh, so much of your work uh, has been in dialogue and inspired by Bonhoeffer, and I'm really intrigued by Bonhoeffer's concept of religionless Christianity, and I, I really think that a lot of your work kind of um, speaks to that, and I, and I think we've touched mm -hmm. on that a bit. Uh, but maybe more specifically, and let's kind of zero in on that question of what are the ways that your work has um, been informed by and maybe speaks to the concept of religionless Christianity? I am a theologian because of Bonhoeffer's religionless Christianity. I, I will say that quite mm. honestly because wow. um, I, um, I wasn't ever planning to study theology. I, I was actually planning to study English literature, do my PhD in English. Um, I, I was an English major in college, and um, my, well, uh, towards the end of my, my college career, uh, I had a class in uh, modern European literature. I was, a, I was at Wheaton College, so a mm -hmm. little different than most college contexts, but um, <laughs> I, had, I, had a, I had a modern European literature uh, course with Roger Lundin, um, who was kind of my, my mentor at the, time, uh, at the time, and he had us read uh, Letters and Papers from Prison. Mm -hmm. in that course. And I had never read a work of theology. I mean, I, I, mean, I guess no, I had read Augustus Confessions um, in a philosophy course there, but um, I, I had never encountered modern theology of any kind. And mm. uh, that, that reading that book was a life-altering experience. I, wow. I remember um, we were assigned to read, a, you know, some sections of it, and I ended up reading the entire book um, on top, you know, throughout the rest of the semester because I, I had to read the whole thing. I had to read it from cover to cover. Mm -hmm. I still have that copy because I took copious notes throughout the whole thing. <laughs> um, and and um, I, the, all of the parts about, you know, the non-religious interpretation of scripture and the religious Christianity, 
all that material was immediately uh, intuitive to me as this, like this is what I believe, this is what's important, this is what I need to, yeah. I need to talk more about and learn, learn more about. I mean, it, it just struck me over the head immediately. And, um, and I remember talking about, about this a little bit with, with Lundin and, um, and he told me, you know, to follow uh, what he did. He, he, he went to seminary himself, did his MDiv and then went his, did his PhD in literature. And so, um, that was my plan. I was, mm-hmm. uh, he, uh, he had said, go to Princeton or go to Yale. And so I, I went to Princeton seminary and, um, uh, I think I knew even before I arrived that I was going to stick around and do the PhD in, in theology instead. <laughs> um, but I came, I came with this plan that I was going to do my MDiv and then go off and do an, an English literature PhD. But immediately I realized, yeah, no, I, I, I just need to stick with this stuff and, and learn it really well. And um, it, it, uh, it spoke to me in a way that nothing else ever did. And so, yeah, Bonhoeffer was really important for me. Um, that work on religionless Christianity and letters and papers from prison um, has probably been, I mean, without question, the most important thing I've ever read for my own theological mm. development. Wow. Um, it, uh, I mean, Boltmann, of course, is, is what I'm known for now, but I would never have gotten into Boltmann if it hadn't been for Bonhoeffer first. Mm-hmm. Um, the, 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 the Boltmann stuff resonated because I read Bonhoeffer. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that was the order for me. Um, <clears throat> So in terms of my own thinking, though, like uh, actually constructively how it's been important, I, uh, I've, I've really sought to develop what Bonhoeffer was kind of tinkering with at the end of his life um, in a more systematic way. I, I, you know, I've always been disappointed with the way in which Bonhoeffer scholars have kind of tried to distance Bonhoeffer from some of those radical ideas, yeah. and that's largely because you know people like John Robinson's "Honest to God" and and some of the death the death of God work and secular theology work of the sixties and seventies. You know, Bonhoeffer became associated with all that stuff, and the Bonhoeffer scholars were were afraid of being associated with these radical movements that they didn't mm-hmm. want to associate him with, with anymore, and and so they worked really hard to make him look more conservative or more traditional in a in a, in a more Bardian way. And I, I get that. I mean, that's that's faithful to Bonhoeffer's other work. That's that's fair. Um, nevertheless, um, it was always I, I've always gravitated towards that reading of Bonhoeffer. Um, mm-hmm. I I quite like you know uh, you know uh, um, you know uh, Smith's secular Christianity or or Paul Van Buren's work or uh, uh, you know a lot of a lot of that stuff that. You know, I, I even even honest to God, which I really enjoy that honest to God actually quite a bit. Um, all those books, um, to me, they were grappling with the real issues. You know, even if we didn't want to follow them entirely, or even if we want to say say things differently or go beyond them in many other respects, they, they, for me, they were grappling with the, the real issues that Bonhoeffer posed to theology. And and so much of the theology since then has been a, a reactionary impulse back to kind of c- corral Bonhoeffer as well as other people like Bart and other folks uh, within more safe confines within church and theology. Mm-hmm. And um, I I I really for me um, it, I, I I was compelled to uh, to really. To go in, you go in the other direction to really recover the more radical developments that 
that I think Bonhoeffer um, inspires and provokes. Um, and so for me, that was that was important. I, I I think you could call my my book, my God, the God Just Saves, an exercise in secular theology. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's that's pretty much what it is. It's a religionless Christianity theology. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's another way of describing it. Um, I think that's very fair to to what I do, and I draw on those texts quite a bit in various ways throughout the book. Um, some, some ways very subtle, some ways more explicit. So I, I said we're 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 gonna get back to this. So I want to know just one song from Arcade Fire. This will be the last like main question. One song from Arcade Fire that has influenced your theology. And and why and why is it that it influenced it? Um <laughs> so I you know, okay. I for me the, um one of the themes in, in Market Fire's early work uh, in Funeral, as well as in their early EP that came out before that, mm-hmm. is um, it's this sense of, of, of sleeping and waking. And this comes up in Wake Up is their most famous song, and that's, yep. that's, that's uh, an important one. Um, and, but even No Cars Go is another one of their famous songs, which, come, which was in their EP, but then came yep. out again in... Uh, in Neon Bible. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, both of those songs as well as Rebellion, uh, so Rebellion is also on Funeral, all three of those songs grapple with this issue of sleeping and waking and sense of, of um, the fact, the, the passing of time and the way in which uh, we grow up. And they're all very existential songs. They're mm-hmm. existential in the sense that they grapple with this, the, the, the way in which our mortality and our finitude um, uh, is a source of both wonder and also of pain and 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 yeah. trauma. Um, there's a line in Wake Up where where they talk about how you know, our bodies get bigger, but our hearts get torn up. And then and then one of my favorite lines that they've ever written is like, you know, we're just a million little gods causing rainstorms, turning every good thing to rust. Mm. Um, and the sense in which you know we. Um, uh, the, the, the Arcade Fire is grappling all those songs with this, this, this. They have a desire to kind of shut down and stay children and stay asleep. Um, there's uh, like in Rebellion, Lies. You know, there's you know there's this fear uh, about um, uh, you know waking up. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so uh, well, fear of actually going to sleep, I should say. Um, so in that song, there, you know, the, the, the refrain is every time you close your eyes, lies, lies. They're, they're, your dreams are, are are lying to you, and so there's this issue of of fear of sleeping, fear of waking, or, or you know, wanting to stay still. And no cars go. The line is, you know, between the click of the light and the start of the dream. You know, we're we're kind of in that moment between mm-hmm. you know, being awake or being asleep. Um, so there's this sense of like this eternal moment, like this this, this existential moment um, where we're we're kind of caught between finitude and this kind of the fantasy of the dream world, you know, which in some ways like between reality and like metaphysics or or religion and, and secularity, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think 
they are grappling with that dilemma of being caught between those 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 places mm-hmm. and struggling with what it means to be human um, in that sense. And I think theology is also in that same location. It's trying yeah. to grapple with being um, caught between the pain and suffering of finitude and your desire to be free of it, which can be lies, right? That could be like, right. you know, are, are we just trading in religious lies that are 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 soothing our our pain and and giving us you know this opium of the masses, um, you know, so we we're kind of caught between both of these temptations and or both of these issues and uh, and and so I think for me that's been informative my own self personally try to um, to uh, address the actual you know suffering and and pain that we that we we encounter in our life. Um, in a way that's honest and doesn't try to avoid it. Um, and uh, so I, I guess in that sense, I, I want to, to do theology in the mode of Arcade Fire. Last question, where can we stay in contact and connected with you? Uh, I mean, the most obvious place would be Twitter. So mm-hmm. D.W. Congdon, uh, the place to find me. Um, I have a website at dwcongdon.com, which you can email me through there. Um, but uh, otherwise, um, I also have an Amazon author page, so you can find my books and my I'm sure you have a, a wish list, too, that uh, you would not mind someone <laughs> buying a couple books. I'm it sure. is, I do have a, I have a wish list, and it's absurdly long. So, <laughs> yes. Well, it needs hopefully, to be shortened, if at all possible. <laughs> well, hopefully there, there might be a listener out there that is so greatly compelled by the lure of God to, d- <laughs> to do that. Uh, so may- maybe, maybe you'll find uh, that list to grow a little shorter. Um, yeah, I just want to um, thank you. Lessons on that. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to thank you again, David. Uh, it's been so fun to not only be able to interact with you on Twitter, but then now uh, go face-to-face, have a great long conversation. And so, yeah, thank you so much for the work that you're doing and uh, to, to many more interactions and conversations. Thank you, Mason. Appreciate the time. Has your mind exploded? I mean, I feel like there has been so much information put in between both of my ears that I don't even know if it can contain it anymore. That's probably a good thing, right? Usually mind exploding, brain matter everywhere in the room. I don't know. Maybe it's not such a good thing. But regardless, I know that David and his work on Religionless Church and Rudolf Boltman, I mean, it is something else. He, I mean, he really is taking this scholarship to another level and really introducing it to an audience that I think could really greatly be impacted by it, especially a younger audience because he's active on Twitter. It's been really cool seeing some of the work that he's doing online and in his publications. So again, check out his work and all that he's doing. All those links are below. How did you like River Teeth? I mean, they, they're legit. They're really legit. I don't know how they're not signed yet. That I, I am fairly well-versed into post-hardcore music, and they are really something else. They know their sound really well. They've got great sound structure. I mean, they, they really know who they are as a band. 
So I'm really excited to see if they take off. I'd be really excited for you to be able to check them out and help them that in that endeavor. So make sure you check out River Teeth. Again, all of their links are below. And be sure to check out my work. I'd love to hear what you have to say about my papers that I've been writing and what you have to say about Religionless Church. Again, you can give us a rating or you can give me a little email. All of that, you can get contact in contact with me on my website and on social media. I hope you had another wonderful experience listening in to Religionless Church. Until next time, peace out. Shit,